0: We're reading this morning from Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbour and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewellery and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians.
1: Amen. If you can um, keep that passage there before you, find that helpful. Hopefully you, you received a sheet as you came through the door, which will have that on. If not, there are some Bibles there in front of you, hopefully, and you can turn up the story from Exodus chapter 3 in there. It's the second book of the Bible, so you'll find it very sort of close in. Let me pull up my notes for myself here. Excellent. Uh, I wonder what it would be like to be a fly on the wall for uh, some of these amazing, life-changing events uh, with these massively talented sort of people. I wonder what it might have been like to have been there in the room when Adele first realised she could sing, or perhaps when Michael Jordan first picked up a basketball, or when Serena Williams picked up a tennis racket, or when Lionel Messi first kicked a football. What might it have been like to be in that moment and to see an event that would change the course of their lives forever? And this, this morning, this story is one of those sorts of events, a moment where destiny sort of falls in Moses' lap and where he finds what he will do with his life by meeting with the living God. And this is the event that changes not only the course of Moses' life, but Israel's lives. Chapter two had shown us that God delivers His people by sending a deliverer, but that in the end, God delivered his deliverer. And in Moses, we saw that he had strength, particularly that he sacrifices his own personal comfort to resist injustice, a very significant strength. But he also has some significant weaknesses. He is rash, he relies at times on his own wisdom. And for all his good intentions, maybe he had made things worse when he stepped out to deliver God's people in his own insight. But most of all, we saw in chapter 2 that God himself is the hero and that he would save his people by his hand. So a little reminder of some of the context before we get into that text. So that God had brought the people to Egypt to save them. They were going to suffer uh, from famine in their own land and he had brought them to Egypt. And because of Joseph, one of their own sons, but who had been sold into slavery and risen to prominence within Egypt, saved the people of Egypt in fact and is able to save the people of Israel, the people of God too. God brings them to Egypt to save them. But now he's bringing them out to save them too because they're experiencing great oppression and injustice and suffering and slavery in the land of Egypt. And so God is moving, and this is the real story of the book of Exodus, to fulfill his promise to Abraham and the patriarchs to build a people. In chapter one, we saw that The more Pharaoh oppressed Israel for God's blessing them, the more God blessed his people. In chapter 2, we saw God provided a deliverer, but the deliverer seems to have botched things. And he seems to have needed delivering for himself. And so I remind you that promise that God is fulfilling, Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. He said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. He promises a place. And I will make of you a great nation, and I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. He promises a place, but he promises a people, secondly. And then thirdly, he says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonours you I'll curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He promises that they will be under his rule. A people, a place, under his rule. So where are we at by Exodus 3? Well, the people have grown hugely. In terms of place, they still are stuck in a foreign land. They're under oppression. There's no security or hope for their future. And think about that rule. They're not free to serve God, they serve a tyrant. And the potential new leader seems washed up. So, chapter 3 of Exodus shows us what God is going to do to bring them to a place and under his rule. And I want to show you three simple things in this story. Firstly, Moses' task, God's name, and Israel restored. The first thing we see in this story is Moses' task. Uh, I wonder if you have children or you look out for children or you sort of used to at one point. It's not easy getting people to do a task they don't want to do, is it? and you seem to sort of see this especially with children uh, leon our youngest he doesn't like going to school and almost every day is a fight to get him out of the door and into the door at school and so maybe some of you will identify that you'll know that feeling or perhaps be rekindling some unhappy memories uh and he has several tactics to do this. He'll try to sleep in. He'll try to cry and complain. He'll fake illness. Uh, the other day it went from his toe to his foot to his ankle to his knees, his legs, to his, leg, to, his thigh, to everything. And the teacher comes and explains this to me at the end of the day. I'm like, yeah, he, he didn't want to come at the beginning of the day. <laughs> um, I strongly suspect that's, uh, that's what's happening. And his favorite actually is to walk as slow as is physically possible sort of to the door and you sort of see him in there like this and we've had these conversations it's a bit pointless because we've had them multiple times but i'll say to him just sort of bend down lean his ear, like, you know that i know what you're doing don't you and you know that how many times has this worked <laughs> you, you you've done this hundreds of times but how many times have i just turned around and said oh no you don't have to go none <laughs> and even he has to smile and still carries on doing it a bit it's not easy to get people to do a task they don't want to do, is it? And Moses may have wanted this task before and I think somehow in his mind he, he does as he identifies himself as being Hebrew, not being Egyptian, rejecting that privilege and, and stuff that he's had. He's been very kindly looked after by Pharaoh's daughter and things and, and taken in and rescued, but he doesn't see those as his people. He sees no my, my people of my birth, my, my, my real people are, are, are the Hebrews and he has this heart and compassion to want to save them, but It didn't work out so well but by here this is a task moses doesn't want look at here verse one moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law we know from stephen's commentary that there's 40 years that pass between the last incident and now this one this morning moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law and this is a comfortable come down This is comfortable because this is an easy job for Moses. This is way beneath his capacity for a man who Stephen says was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in his words and his deeds, Acts 7, verse 22. But it's also a come down. It's a comfortable job, but it's a come down. He's gone from Pharaoh's palace to shepherding someone else's flock because he's married up. He doesn't even own the flock that he's looking after. It's a come down. It's the equivalent, think of it, of, you know, you work in the sort of pace and the sort of importance of somewhere like the White House to selling insurance, which, no disrespect, but it's just a little boring. <laughs> a little come down, isn't it, if that's what you've been used to. It's from going from Wall Street to selling second-hand cars. This is a comfortable come down for him. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness. And this is an amazing little detail. It may not seem it on first glance, but here is Moses in the wilderness. God has been preparing the one who would lead his people in the wilderness through 40 years by putting him first in the wilderness and God seems to have a pattern of doing this think of Jesus 30 of his 33 years on this earth were lived in everyday life like everybody else that's what I take from that an encouragement don't be discouraged because you're not where you thought God would call you and lead you to be yet trust the process One commentator here, Michael Morales, puts it like this. The mediator for God's people must first experience the journey himself for their sakes to lead them along the same path. And he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And I have here on a map for you so you can get some sort of idea of of roughly where this is. There you go, you can see that sort of roughly there in the middle. Horeb is the name of a sort of mountainous region. uh, The Mount... That particularly God will reveal Himself on, and, and numerous times the people of Israel and Moses Himself will have amazing encounters with God is Mount Sinai, which is in that sort of region. But Mount Horeb uh, is a way of sort of referring to that sort of region of mountains and hills at which God will specially reveal Himself to His people uh, in the days to come and the years ahead of them. And so, a significant place sets up what will now be a significant visit. Look at verse 2. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the mists of a bush. And immediately, there's a bit of a question there, isn't there? Who is this angel of the Lord? Because this isn't just an angel. Look at what it says there. It says it is the angel of the Lord. And here, like in other places, it appears that this character is God himself. Give Genesis chapter 16, then an appearance to Hagar. She says, She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. Before that, it's been the angel of the Lord there. Or to Jacob in Genesis 31. The angel of the Lord says, I am the God of Bethel. Or to Gideon in Judges 6. I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Angel of the Lord and God are used interchangeably. So you can look at verse 4, just uh, a couple of verses below there. It says, God called to him out of the bush, Moses. So one commentator explains this, uh, Stuart saying, the translation might better be, the angel that is, Yahweh. This is God speaking to Moses. Moses. And the first thing we see here in this interaction is that God is transcendent. That God is above and beyond. He's like a fire, but he's not just a fire. He's a self-sustaining fire. It's burning and yet it's not consumed. He's above and beyond our capacity to understand. He says, verse 5, don't come near. Take your sandals off your feet. The place on which you're standing is holy. And think about this for Moses. This is an unusual experience. Moses has grown up in Pharaoh's palace and there would have been nowhere that was off limits for Moses. There would be nowhere that he couldn't go. In fact, he would have had people treating him with respect in all of those places. What can we do for you? But here, Moses can't assume that he is just able to approach God's presence. The ground itself isn't special. But any piece of ground on which the living God rests becomes special. I am the God of your father, says the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Maybe, just maybe, This is actually the first encounter with God for Moses. Think about it. He has grown up within Pharaoh's house. He has grown up in the wisdom of the Egyptians, as Stephen tells us. And now he's lived 40 years in Midian, a foreign land. And yet now this connects us back to the story in Genesis. And this moment is huge, because if you can remember back to, to last time... Moses begins to recognize himself as being Hebrew and rejects the Egyptian identity, rejects the riches and the comfort and the privilege in order to identify with the people of God, no matter what that will mean for him. But nobody else recognized that. The other Hebrews said, who made you a king and a prince over us? The women who he rescues in Midian say an Egyptian saved us. Nobody has recognised that identity that Moses has chosen to take up. But God. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. God recognises Moses' Hebrew identity, the one that everybody else had rejected in the story so far. And look at Moses' response, verse 6. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look. To encounter God is a privilege, but it's traumatic. He hides his face. And then look at what God says to Moses here. He says, I've come down to deliver them, verse 8, to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. It is God who is going to deliver his people through his hand. Even if he employs people in that business. It's a land flowing with milk and honey, he says. place of the Canaanites and all of those other peoples there listed. And again, I have a a map here of that land so you can get an idea of where that is and what that looks like. There's a map of the whole area on the left and then the land specifically there on the right, which is up in the top right-hand corner of that first This is the land that God had promised to Abraham hundreds of years before and it connects what's happened here in the immediate past and moments to what God had promised always would happen. Genesis 15 tells us here, this is his promise again to Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners, travelers, exiles in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." God is bringing them to the land that he's always promised. Why has it taken so long? Because that's one of the natural questions you might ask. Why have God's people been left here in oppression for so long? Well, one of the answers is that God has been actually giving grace to those who have been living in in, in great sort of sin and unrighteousness. He's given them 400 years in which to turn around. Time that's been wasted. I will send you, verse 10, he says to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people the children of Israel out of Egypt? And then look at Moses' response, verse 11. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? It's a fair question. It's a question that comes not just from humility for Moses. Pharaoh, his, his adopted granddad, is, is dead. And this Pharaoh doesn't know him. In exile having killed an Egyptian. There is no obvious reason that this pharaoh should listen to Moses. He doesn't have any leverage on him. He doesn't have any favours to call in. There's no obvious reason it should be Moses who goes. And Moses has spent almost all of his life not living amongst or as one of the people of Israel. He's grown up in Pharaoh's court, now living in Midian, There is no obvious reason why the people of Israel should follow Moses' as leader. The question is the legitimate one. Who am I that I should go? There's no reason Pharaoh should listen to me. There's no reason the people of Israel should follow me. Why is it me that you're choosing? But isn't that the case? That the best leaders don't want to lead. It just gets thrown on them. They don't set out to do it. They don't desire it. It lands upon them. And look at God's response here, verse 12, as we end this section. But I will be with you. He doesn't even answer, really, the question, (laughs) only to say, I will be with you. It's not about you, Moses. And so God can use the weakest of people if he is with them. But I will be with you. And he says, when you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. He's bringing them to a place, the land of the Canaanites. He's bringing them to an experience where they'll be under his good rule. You shall serve me on this mountain. And listen to that. God assumes Moses is going to do it. His reassurance for him is, when you've done it, at the end of it you'll worship me here that's the sign you're not getting a sign now and oh now I trust you now I can go out it's no when you've done it <laughs> then you'll know so that Moses has to just go out and do it and go out trusting and believing and will only know at the other end of it that God has helped him to do that he's not going to get an easy way out of this he just assumes that he's going to do it it's a fulfillment sign you have to do it and then see whether it comes true At the end, God comes to deliver his people by commissioning a deliverer, a deliverer delivered out of exile himself. There's Moses' task. But then secondly, we see God's name. (coughs) We have um, in our household um, a saying, uh, poison chalice jobs. And I reckon that some of you might sort of know what these are. Um, These are jobs that seem okay on the face of it when someone gives you them and they try very hard to make sure that it looks like that. Uh, But you soon find they're either impossible, barely possible, or will create three to four other jobs in order to do them first. For example, oh, could you just go to the shop? And you realise actually it's three different shops you have to go to in three different directions, And you need to get petrol. Or, go, can you cook the tea? Okay, fair enough. Until you realise there's three different dinners to be prepared simultaneously to exacting specifications that only children can give. Or maybe it's, you know, could you just cut that bush? Which is fine until you realise you have to tidy the garage that, yes, you should have kept in order, but you haven't. Uh, You need to find the tools from within that mess. And, oh, by the way, you've lost the key to the garage, so you've got to get that first too. Or maybe it's just about, you know, could you make a fire? Fine, fair enough. But then you find the fireplace needs cleaning. There's no wood and there's no fire lighters. So you're back at job number one, going to the shop. Three different directions. Poison chalice jobs. Moses feels as though this is a poison chalice. Pharaoh won't let the people go. The people aren't going to go with me anyway. If chapter two was revealing Moses' character... The chapter 3 really is about revealing God's character to us. Look at verse 13. If I come to the people and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And let's pause briefly there just to note the way that Moses words that. If I come to the people and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And I just wonder whether Moses' time in Midian, 40 years, has eroded a little bit of Moses' sense of identity with those people. Because now he says, your fathers, not our fathers. If they ask, what's his name, what shall I say to them? Who is it that's appointed me? And perhaps, again, this comes from his past. Think of where he's tried to uh, give uh, advice to the two Hebrews fighting. Why do you strike the other man? Don't do this. You shouldn't do this, brothers amongst brothers here. And they say, who's appointed you a prince and a ruler? What if they say to me, who's given me this authority to say this? What will I say and he wants to know more than just his name. He wants to know something about God. The way in which names work here in this age is they tell you something about that person. Tell me who you are, what you like, what, what am I to say to them when I go to them if I do? Look at God's response. I am who I am. Or you, you might have a little footnote there perhaps in, in your Bible saying that it could also be translated I will be who I will be. God is the only one who is self existing, self determining, unrestrained, unlimited, unending. That's how he's to be known. I'm not sure that was probably the answer that Moses was looking for. <laughs> and I wonder if you thought, well, what will people make of that as a description? Says, verse 15, the Lord. You may notice there that that's written in block capitals because that's actually an appearance of the actual personal name of God. And every time through the Old Testament, this is being used out of reverence. Uh, Jewish people don't want to sort of write it out as it was. This is the Lord Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has sent me. And the word Yahweh is, 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 is something like a transliteration of sort of I am. I am who I am it's the personal name version of that description I am who I am the Lord Yahweh the God of your fathers has sent me and what's most important here is Moses isn't receiving a new name Moses is being invited into a legacy of God's name this is a name that has been used before This makes sense for God to say this to Moses because it's a name known by those forefathers in the faith. For example, to Abraham in Genesis 15, I am Yahweh, the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And to Jacob, Genesis 28, I am Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. He's being welcomed in to that heritage of faith. And so now he commands him what he's to do, verse 6 to gather the elders of Israel together and say this to him. I mean, what a thing for Moses to do. Where does he start with doing that? How does he manage to get them all together? And the messages go and tell the people of Israel what we already know, because we've been told this in very similar words, chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. We've been sort of let in behind the curtain. Moses now knows it directly because he's heard it upon the mountain in front of uh, God in the burning bush this message that God sees God hears God knows and God delivers you from your suffering and then there's a promise verse 17 and I promise that I'll bring you out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and they will listen to your voice Moses has been very pessimistic hasn't he The people aren't going to listen to me. Who am I for them to listen to me and to follow me? But here's the encouragement. The people will listen to you, Moses. And yet Moses is still going to question his ability later on. We'll see that probably next week. Chapter 4, verse 10. But would you rather a leader who's unsure of themselves or a leader who's full of themselves I wonder whether who Moses is here is actually endearing and makes him a better leader for it. That he doesn't want this role. That he's not backing himself. He doesn't think he's necessarily capable. He's not desiring to be in this place in front and before and over everybody. And they will listen to your voice and he says to say to Pharaoh let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we might sacrifice to the Lord our God and interestingly this isn't even the request for freedom by the way this this is simply the request just to be able to go out and to worship their own gods in uh, their own god in freedom rather than the gods of Egypt and this shows the real conflict The real conflict through the book of Exodus and through this encounter with Pharaoh is that Pharaoh tried to take the position of God and now God will ruin him. God reveals his name to Moses and we see here it's when we come to see who God truly is that we're ready to do what he's called us to do. We see Moses' task, god's name and then lastly we see israel restored there's a restoration that's needed for god's people isn't there we all know that there's some times in life where an apology doesn't quite cut it that's that's not enough we need to be made whole again afterwards Uh, i once had an easter egg bought for me lovely easter egg perfect it's been really well sort of chosen for me i mean i like all chocolate but it was particularly good one of my favorites it for me, presented to me, lovely. And then eaten before I could ever get to it. <laughs> I, was, I was told oh, it was just too slow. And it was just sort of sat there. So, you know, I just, <laughs> it was calling to me. I just had to eat it. And, you know, the apology was very kind and much appreciated. But there was a bit of a need for it to be replaced. And in fairness, the person was very kind, was very good, and, and replaced the egg and presented again. Oh, thank you so much. This is great. I'm going to love this. Uh, and then they ate it again. <laughs> And then I gave up. (laughs) And to be fair, this Easter, I I actually did that to the boys with some lint bunnies, but there you go. It's it's hard to buy them out of season as well, so probably the restoration's going to have to take a while to, to occur. Sometimes it's not enough just for the apology. You need to be made whole again. It's not enough for Israel just to get out of Egypt. They need to be made whole again. And that's God's promise here. Not only will you get the freedom... And make you whole again. And look, we see here, verse nineteen to twenty, how God will deal with Pharaoh, and then twenty-one to twenty-two, how God will deal with the Israelites. Firstly, how He deals with Pharaoh. Look at verse nineteen with me. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. God is not only completely free to be who He will be. He is also all-knowing of the human heart and psyche and character. I know that the king of Egypt won't let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. God's first approach here is to use his voice to call Pharaoh, giving him a chance to change. Then he'll use his hand. And I will stretch out my hand, verse 20 says, and strike Egypt with all the wonders I will do in it. And some of that revelation there to Moses, I am who I am, I will be who I will be, must surely relate to what he's going to do. That he will stretch out his hand and he will be who he will be and he will do what he will do in order to free his people. And after that, he will let you go. Pharaoh might think his resolve is strong, but it is not as strong as the hand of God. And then we see how God will deal with the Israelites as this chapter ends, verse 21. And I will give this people favour in the sight of the Egyptians. The tide is going to turn for Israel. Pharaoh's period of racist propaganda and genocide that we've seen will end with the Egyptians favouring the people of Israel. And when you go, God says, you shall not go empty. God's restoration and blessing of his people is going to be total. They came to Egypt with the most basic items they could take and were suppressed from making any sort of strong financial future once they were there. They really don't have much to their names. But they are going to go out loaded up with riches from Egypt. Why? So that God's blessing over them is visibly obvious. He's not only freeing them, he's making them whole in every way. And so it's summarised here, verse 22. So you shall plunder, or actually in in the Hebrew there it's, will be stripped from. The riches that they had extorted through Israel's slavery will be stripped from the Egyptians' hands. Isn't there a poetic justice in that? It's like a robbery, except they give it. You will ask, and they will give. And you see that contrast. They come into Egypt basically empty-handed. They're coming out loaded up like Mr. T. They've got every single piece of jewellery on show that they could possibly manage to lift on themselves so that it would be obvious what's happened. They're being made whole. And let's just stop for just a second before we finish there. Because you might hear that and you might have a little bit of sympathy for the Egyptians. We might say, you know, Pharaoh installed those racist policies. It wasn't the people. They didn't enact those. Perhaps not. But they benefited, didn't they? They could have done something. They could have revolted. But they didn't. They chose a path of least resistance and they enjoyed the fruits of it in the meantime. That was and is wrong. And God turns the tables because of who he is. Think back to that promise in Genesis 12. I will bless those that bless you. I will curse those who curse you. God is restoring his people. He's their deliverer. And not only will they be free, but they'll be made right. You know, Moses found out who he truly was and what he was to live for by realising who God truly was in this encounter. And Moses' job will be to represent who God is to the people and the people back to God. And yet it's a job and a responsibility that Moses is reluctant to take on and we'll see him at times trying to resist it and being frustrated with it and he won't always get it right And yet when Moses met with God, we read later on that his face would shine from God's glory before him. That he would be visibly changed by being in his presence. And yet even with that, Moses is only a shadow of the glorious leader and redeemer to come. Because there's a partiality to it. That it fades. In a way that it doesn't with Jesus. Moses later we hear wore a veil to hide God's glory fading from his face. Second Corinthians 3 tells us, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who had put a veil over his face, so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. What it means is he, he put the veil on because at first God's glory was really visible on him. And then after a couple of days, the glory of God faded like a bad fake tan. And they suddenly started to realise just how human Moses really was. And to spare his blushes, he wears a veil so they wouldn't see it. And then only Moses could approach God's presence for all. And yet now we can all approach God's presence. Then Moses had to hide the glory of God fading as his sin came back to the surface. there's a challenge because we can read the book of exodus we can read these stories we can read the whole of scripture in fact with a veil covering our eyes if we don't look to jesus second corinthians uh, three continues but their minds talking about uh, jewish people were hardened for to this day when they read the old covenant that same veil remains unlifted because only through christ is it taken away yes to this day whenever moses is read remember moses is the author of these books here Moses uh, is read, a veil lies over their hearts. To read Exodus properly, you need to get to Jesus. Jesus said the same, John chapter 5, verse 46. If you believed Moses, Moses writing here in these books, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? But look how Paul ends here. Look at the hope and the joy and the security we find. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 16 to 18, he finishes off. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Moses found who he truly was and what he was to live for by truly meeting with God. So how do we do that? What should we do? What's the point this morning? Well, I think it's simple. Take off your shoes, metaphorically. Don't necessarily want to smell your feet. Take off your shoes and approach God's presence in Christ and be transformed. And not have to hide in plain sight as though that glory might fade. It will not. Be bold. Knowing the spirit living with you always means you can be completely transformed into the image of the glory of God himself. That you can know that peak moment that Moses experiences with God on the mountain. All day. Any day not having to travel to a special place, not having to say special words. But In each and every moment, take off your shoes and approach God's presence with boldness, with confidence through Christ.